Take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. We'll read the first 24 verses. If you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere in the pew around you. And 1 Corinthians 7 is on page 955 of that Bible. We're working our way through this letter. And uh, up to this point, in the first six chapters, Paul's been dealing with issues that he heard about in the church in Corinth. And beginning in chapter 7, he starts dealing with issues they ask about. And he typically marks off those topics that they've asked about with the phrase, now concerning, now concerning this question, now concerning that question. And that's how chapter 7 begins. So we'll begin reading right at verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. This is what the Holy Spirit says to us through the Apostle Paul. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. 
For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now for your help. This is your word, inspired by your spirit, written by your apostle, preached through your servant for the sake of your people and your glory. And this cannot happen apart from your spirit's help, both in preaching and in hearing. And so we ask for your help now, that what we know not, you will teach us. What we have not, you will give us, and what we are not, you will make us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. 130 years ago, a little girl named Maro was born. It's a family name, going back generations. She grew up, and her parents taught her their Christian faith took her to the Steel Creek Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. When Morrow was 24 years old, she married a dairy farmer named Frank, and uh, she joined him in working on that farm. And she worked hard. She chopped wood for fires. She kept the books for the farm. She did a whole lot of things. In fact, uh, the day that she gave birth to their first son, she spent the morning picking beans. And then at four o'clock that afternoon, gave birth. There's a birthing plan for you. (laughs) But hers was really, in many ways, an ordinary life. She started to have children. Uh, She sang in the choir at church. She taught Sunday school. Uh, She and Frank raised their children to work hard and to follow Jesus. Really, when you look at it, it's pretty unremarkable. It's not an extraordinary life. But Mara was content with where the Lord had put her, and she lived the life that God gave her faithfully. Truth be told, most of us have pretty unremarkable lives. I mean, some of us are married, some are single, some of us are still growing up. So we do our jobs, we go to school, we pay the bills, we do homework, we spend time with friends, we serve at church, we raise children. Pretty normal stuff. But wherever it is that we are, that's where God has placed us. And where God places us, in the circumstances we're in, in the relationships we have, He calls us to live faithfully where He's put us. And that, in big terms, is what Paul is communicating in this text, that we as Christians should be content to live faithfully the life God gives us. Be content to live faithfully 
the life God gives us. Now, as I said, Paul's answering a question here, a question about physical intimacy in marriage. That's where the, how the question is posed. But Paul takes that question and expands it out to the broad principle that wherever it is that we are, wherever it is that God has set us down, there we ought to live faithfully and remain, be content. Verse 24, he sums it all up. In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So, we're going to look at this idea of being content and living faithfully. And the first thing we see is that Paul calls us to live faithfully, you, to live faithfully in your marriage. Live faithfully in your marriage. Now, as we look at this, I mean, you were listening, so all manner of questions and other things came up. What I can tell you is that here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is not trying to give uh, a full explanation of marriage, a full explanation of divorce, a full explanation of widowhood, a full explanation of singleness. He's addressing this question, and then he speaks to these people in their situation. And the question they have is there in verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, literally not to touch a woman. Now, why would they ask this with regard to marriage? That's immediately what comes to mind. Why would they possibly ask this? We instinctively know that this is part of marriage. Why would they ask it? Well, in Corinth, there was this philosophy that was quite popular called asceticism, okay? And uh, you may or may not remember that, but remember this. This philosophy basically taught that the more you denied yourself physical pleasure, the more you denied yourself physical satisfaction, the more spiritual you were. And so people in Corinth were buying into this, saying that, that it, yes, it, but if you're a Christian and you're married, if you abstain from physical intimacy, then you can live a more faithful life. Then you will be more spiritual. Then you will be a better Christian. Now, certainly, self-denial is a Christian principle. However, the Bible also teaches that God gives us particular gifts to be enjoyed in the place that they are meant to be enjoyed. And one of those is physical intimacy. So Paul corrects this false idea by telling them that faithfulness in marriage, spirituality in marriage, godliness as a Christian in marriage with regard to physical intimacy is not so much about denying as it is about giving. Giving four things, well, really three things and then a concession. The first is to give protection. Protection. Physical intimacy in marriage protects against sexual immorality. That's what he says in verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own Husband, And it's interesting, in the original language, the word temptation isn't even there, but sexual immorality is plural. So he literally says, because of sexual immoralities, like they're everywhere. 
They're all around us, a bit like the uh, adulterous woman in Proverbs 7. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. That's what it was like to live in Corinth. Sexual immorality, immorality was everywhere. If they had those electronic billboards, you know, that changed from one thing to another, two out of three would be something that was supposed to stimulate sexual immorality. It was on the street. It was in every alley. It was in the cult temples. It was everywhere, and it was accepted. Now, I don't know if you might connect these dots as easily as I do, but we still live in the same world that these Corinthians do, don't we? Sexual immorality is everywhere. There it is in the market. There it is on the street. There it is in the corner. There it is in the hidden recesses of your heart. But physical intimacy in marriage is meant to protect. It's meant to help fight the battle against wandering desires and immorality. The second thing to give, he says to give what is owed. Now that sounds terrible, doesn't it? I mean, come on. I didn't come up with it. Paul did. Look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The phrase conjugal rights there is literally a debt, something that is an obligation, something that is owed. Not in the sense that, oh, I did this for you, now you owe me. Not that kind of owe. It's an owing of obedience to God because God designed marriage in part for the enjoyment of this intimacy. It's part of what it means to be married. If you say, well, yes, well, we have a really spiritual marriage. We don't need all of that like other people do. We have a very spiritual marriage. Well, friend, then you have a marriage that God didn't design. If this is not part of life as a married couple, as husband and wife. The third thing is to give authority. This cuts against the grain, doesn't it? Look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I want to be clear. Paul is not authorizing uh, some kind of uh, sexual abuse here. He is talking about the regular rhythm of marriage. And in the regular rhythm of marriage... I am not in charge of me. That's what he's saying. I'm not in charge of me. I don't make demands. That's not my role. I give to the other. Even sometimes when I may not be as interested in giving, I give for the sake of the other. Now, I want you to notice something right here and right now. I want you to notice who has the authority? Who is it? Ultimately, it's God. I mean, that's the safe answer here, right? Well, God has all the authority. Well, actually, but as you read the verse, you know who has authority? Both husband and wife. I point that out because there are those who have a strong bias against the biblical sexual ethic because they think it automatically means the dominance of one person over the other. Paul does not say that. 
Paul says the authority is mutual. Okay? So we give, we give protection. We give what is owed. We give authority. And the fourth thing is actually optional. And it's a give up for a time. Maybe. I mean, that's what he says. Give up for a time. Maybe. Look at verses 5 and 6. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. This is a concession. Your marriage is not less spiritual if you never abstain for the sake of prayer or for the sake of some other spiritual endeavor. But Paul is meeting these Corinthians where they're at. They want to be spiritual in marriage, and for some reason they think, you know, celibacy is the way to go for that. And he's saying, if you're going to do that, it must be for a time, and it must be my mutual decision. Did you notice that? It has to be by agreement. If both of you want that, then okay, but it's, it can only be for a time. Why? Because celibacy in marriage leaves an open door for Satan. That's what he says. Celibacy in marriage leaves an open door for Satan. So this is all about giving. Living faithful, living faithfully in marriage, particularly in the area of physical intimacy, is about giving whether you're the wife or the husband. Both have the same responsibility. To be content, to live faithfully, by giving. You see, in a very real way, what Paul is saying about how husbands and wives interact is just an application of the principle that he writes in Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, there's more that can be said about this, isn't there? There's a whole bunch that Paul isn't going to address. Sometimes there are physiological problems that may limit intimacy. Sometimes the rhythm of desire, I mean the reality is the rhythm of desire varies from marriage to marriage and person to person. The circumstances of life sometimes make it difficult for one to want intimacy on a particular day. And so what are you to do if that's where the other person is? Are you to come in and say, well, let's just open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, shall we? Well, that would violate the whole spirit of the thing, wouldn't it? What do you do in those circumstances if you're the other one and your wife, your husband is struggling? You defer. You give. You look to their interests and not your own. And sometimes that will mean not being intimate for the sake of the other. This is the posture of the Christian life. It is never self-seeking. So, if you're married, husband, wife, how's it going? I mean, what's your approach to physical intimacy in marriage? Are you more interested in getting or in giving? In looking out for their interests or your own? Faithfulness in marriage means giving. 
even in the area of physical intimacy. Now he goes on from there to say, you ought to live faithfully in your singleness. You ought to live faithfully in your singleness. Look at verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. He says singleness is a gift. I mean, it's a different kind of gift than marriage with different blessings, but both are gifts from God. The reality is God's ordained pattern for most of humanity is marriage because this is what propagates the human race. This is how things ought to, you know, are the norm. However, it is not exclusive. It is not better. It is not, it's not that singleness is less than. It is simply different. So Paul looks at these single folks, some who've never been married, some who had the gift of marriage and lost it to divorce, some who had the gift of marriage and lost it to death. And he says this, verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It's good to remain single. It's good. Single folks, hear that. It's good to remain single. To be content with where God has placed you. To live faithfully there. In particular, faithfully in this same area of physical intimacy. You must exercise self-control. You see, singleness isn't a gift so that you can just go and give yourself to whoever and to whenever. Singleness is a gift because you can give yourself fully to God. Now, there'll be more on that next week as Stephen takes up the second part of this uh, chapter. But the goal of singleness, as it is in marriage, is to be content and to live faithfully, to not waste your singleness by serving you. Don't waste your singleness by prioritizing you. Don't waste your singleness by only thinking about you. Verse 24, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. With God. Not just grin and bear your singleness. Not just try to get through each day. Not just always think there's something better. Remain with God. God. But then he says, for those who struggle with self-control, there's freedom here. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, notice he does not say it's necessary. That is a huge distinction. It's not that for some people, they just can't be holy, but others can. It's not that at all. But it is better to marry than to be overtaken by physical desire. That's just the facts. And so he says there's freedom here. There's freedom to marry. So if you're single, be content. Treasure the gift that God has given you and live faithfully with it. So singles, I'll ask you just like I asked the married folk. How are you doing with that? How content are you? You may say, well, I don't desire marriage at all. Okay. Some of you would say, I do desire marriage. Okay. But you cannot let the desire for marriage drive you to despair. And you cannot let the desire for marriage drive you to bad choices 
in relationships prior to marriage drive you to bad choices in who you will or will not date. Drive you to hopelessness when it doesn't happen in the time that you'd want it to happen. Don't let the fact that marriage is the norm put pressure on you. Be content with the gift God gives you for as long as God wants you to have that gift and live faithfully. Well, then he moves back into the realm of marriage. He went from married to single, now back to married. Live faithfully in your marriage, live faithfully in your singleness, and then he seems to say live faithfully in your difficult marriage, in your difficult marriage. Paul comes back and speaks of two different types of marriages that are particularly difficult. Now, and I describe these, don't think these are the marriages, these are the only marriages with difficulties. That's not the case at all. These are particularly hard, particularly, maybe it's for a particularly long time, whatever it is. Every marriage has difficulties. Every marriage includes sin and confession and repentance. Every marriage, every wedding that I have ever conducted up here or anywhere else, I have only married one type of person to one another. Sinners. That's it. I have not met one yet. I mean, they think that the other is perfect on that day. But you just give them sometimes a few hours. And they will learn that perfection does not lie in their partner. And they'll learn perfection does not lie within me. I thought I was not a selfish person when I stood at a place like this. Until I got married. And without any help from Susan, all of my sinfulness, sinfulness in being selfish began to emerge. So every marriage has difficulties. Every marriage is two sinners saying, I do. But these are particularly hard circumstances. All right? The first is the marriage uh, where troubles divide. Now, for both of these, baseline faithfulness is going to be the same thing. He's not going to say everything that he could say about either of these circumstances. But the baseline faithfulness is don't separate. Don't divorce. Okay? So first, the marriage where troubles divide. Verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, Paul doesn't explicitly say that this marriage is troubled, but I just want you to think for just a moment. If a marriage is healthy, if confession and repentance are part of the rhythm of the household, if love and service are being expressed from husband to wife and wife to husband, do you ever have to sit over coffee with that friend and say, hang in there, don't divorce him? No, you don't, do you? That is not the circumstance where that even comes up in somebody's mind. 
It's when the trouble seems too much, the differences seem irreconcilable, the change seems impossible. That's when the encouragement is needed, and Paul gives it. In fact, he doesn't even just pass on his own words, he passes on the words of the Lord Jesus. That's what he means in verse 10, by the way, when he says, not I, but the Lord. He doesn't mean, well, this part is really, really, really inspired by the Spirit, and what I say later really isn't. No, he's, but this is an issue that Jesus talked about in His earthly ministry. Of course, He talked about the exception of sexual immorality, but Jesus' general principle was Mark chapter 10, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't separate. Don't divorce. This is not separation as we've come to know it, by the way, living apart but just not divorce. No, separate here is just a synonym for divorce. But when trouble abounds, when it feels like you're drowning in difficulty, don't dabble with divorce. Don't toy with tearing your marriage apart. Live faithfully by staying. And then the, the marriage where faith divides is the second one. Look at verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." Now, when he says it's him talking and not the Lord, he's just saying Jesus never addressed the notion of being married to an unbeliever in his earthly ministry. But as Paul says this, here's what really struck me was that situation where some, some eager young woman just says, I know he's not a Christian, but my goodness, he's nice. He's good to me. He works hard. He makes a good living. He has a good job. May, if I just marry him, maybe God will use me to save him. That is not the kind of marriage that Paul is talking about here. Or vice versa, some eager young man. This is not license to enter into marriage with an unbeliever if you're a Christian. That's not what this is. Paul is very clear that we ought not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. For what fellowship, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And if I can take like 30 seconds as an aside and give you a bit of wisdom, after the many years that I have sat in the counseling room with married couples, I would just tell you, first of all, don't ever violate that. Don't ever rush in just because you think he's great and just because you think he's getting close or just because you think she's great or she's getting close to being a Christian. But I will also just say this as a matter of anecdotal wisdom. Even if they are Christian, be very wise about who you marry. The testimony, the profession of faith may be genuine, but if you are on radically different pages about major issues in life and major issues in doctrine, then you ought to consider that you may be, this is like where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 
That may be a lawful marriage, but it will not be beneficial. It will not be helpful. You will be signing yourself up for a very hard life. Do more than just make sure they've crossed the line of coming from death to life, as critical and foundational as that is. But that's all I'll say on that. The marriage Paul describes is one uh, essentially where two unbelievers come to faith and by the providence and goodness and grace of God, one of them becomes a Christian. One of them's become a Christian. Well, now what do you do, right? What happens now? This is a difficult situation for the Christian, isn't it? Because, I mean, now we don't think the same on the biggest issues of life. And you know what? It's also difficult for the non-Christian in that circumstance. This isn't what they signed up for when they stood there on that day and said all those things. And then the other person is a whole different person through this faith. And for Christians here, part of the reason, why, uh, part of the concern is actually rooted in the Old Testament where God's people are constantly told that holy things ought not to be in contact with unholy things, that the clean ought not to be in touch with the unclean. And so the concern in Corinth is, okay, well, now I've been sanctified. Now I belong to Jesus. Does that mean I need to put away my spouse? And Paul says, no, it does not. No, it does not. Don't separate don't divorce. Live faithfully by staying. Because your staying has a surprising effect. You see, it was the case that the unclean would make the clean unclean. But now in Christ, as we see over and over again in His miracles, the transfer of cleanness goes the other way. And in this relationship, you sanctify your spouse. Now, that doesn't mean that they're saved, that they're a Christian. It also doesn't mean sanctified in the sense that their behavior changes, though some may try to modify to try to appease their believing spouse, at least for a time. But it does mean that the Christian who lives sanctifies that believer. They have a life. That unbeliever has a life distinct from every other unbeliever. They don't get to live in close contact with someone who knows and loves and follows the Lord Jesus. You see, the Christian brings holiness home with them. The Christian brings Christ-like love and service. And so if you are in that circumstance, in that situation, if you're married to an unbeliever, your life faithfully lived for the Lord Jesus Christ is a blessing to the other, whether they realize it or not, and whether they ever acknowledge it or not. Your life lived for Christ is a blessing to them. So you know what you can't do, friend? You cannot sit around discontent you cannot sit around saying, I wish I had something different here. I wish I had something different there. You know, letting your mind wander to, oh, what it would be like to get, be married to her in the church. She's single. You know, what it would be like to be married to that person or just to make up some person that you would like to be married to. 
Boy, wouldn't that just be better? Oh, friend. God has placed you where you're at. In his providence, you are married to the person God intends you to be married to at this moment. And you are to live faithfully for his glory and for your good. And as you bring Christ to the table, you don't know what eter- how eternity might be shaped by that. Verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Even if things fall apart, verse 15, you keep living faithfully. I mean, you may be here and they've already left. Or they're threatening to leave because of your faith. You can live faithfully right where you are. You can still honor the Lord. You can keep loving, keep serving, keep obeying. Why? Because God has called you to peace. So now, be content to live faithfully. But that principle goes beyond marital status. It's a much bigger issue than just marriage and singleness and difficulty in marriage. And so the last thing that Paul says is live faithfully no matter your circumstance. No matter your circumstance. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Whatever the circumstance, God calls us to be content, to remain, to live faithfully. And he says it basically three times there. In verse 17, live the life God has assigned you. Verse 20, remain where you're at. Verse 24, whatever condition you're in, remain with God. Are you a Jew? You won't be better off removing the marks of circumcision. Just be content and live faithfully. Are you a Gentile? Circumcision isn't going to make you a better Christian. You focus on obeying the Lord. Be content. Live faithfully. Are you a slave? Don't let even that worry you. Be content and live faithfully. If you have the opportunity for freedom, take it. But your freedom in Christ, your walk with Christ, is not determined by your station in this world. Be content. Live faithfully. Are you free? Live knowing you're a slave of Jesus Christ and that He has purchased you. Be content. And live faithfully. Are you stuck in a dead-end job? Are you still in middle school or high school? 
Are you in the last decades of life? Are you a stay-at-home mom, a working mom? Do you have physical limitations? Do you have disabilities? Wherever you are, that's where God has you. Be content and live faithfully. Even if where you are is the result of foolish or sinful decisions by you, God has you right here, right now, and the choice is yours to be content and to live faithfully from this point forward. You see, friends, we have no better example of contentment and faithfulness than the Lord Jesus Himself. He lived the life that His Father assigned Him in perfect obedience. And that perfect obedience led to painful suffering. And in His commitment to faithfulness, He went to the cross where He died to forgive us, where He died to save us, where He died to redeem us, where He died so that we might live, so that all who trust in Jesus Christ would live. His faithfulness, His contentment to do what God had sent Him to do is actually the only hope of your salvation. If you would come to Him, He will save you. And then you can actually learn what it means to be content and to live faithfully. I told you about Morrow, that simple woman on that dairy farm with those four children picking beans and having babies in an ordinary place with an ordinary life full of the same kinds of trials and heartaches and struggles and hardships that you and I have. And yet she was content to live faithfully the life that God gave her. And you know what? I would never know her. And you might never know her. And that would be fine. And the only reason I do know her is because of the boy she gave birth to after picking beans that morning. That boy grew up to love and to follow Jesus and to spend his life preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen on any continent he could get to. And he met and counseled and prayed with multiple sitting presidents. My guess is if we pass the microphone around here today, you know someone who came to know Jesus because of Morrow's little boy, because this content, faithful woman, all she ever did in life was be content and live faithfully the life God gave her and raise Billy Graham. Be content to live faithfully the life that God gives you. It may seem ordinary, but ordinary lives lived faithfully give extraordinary glory to God. Be content. Live faithfully where God has you right now. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you recognizing that wherever it is that we find ourselves today, it's because you've placed us there. If we find ourselves in marriage, it's because the Word of God has told us that you 
joined us together. If we are single now, your word tells us that that is a gift. If we are in a difficult marriage, your word tells us that you have not left us or forsaken us. No matter what our social status is, no matter what jobs we're in, no matter what we think of our lives, you've placed us where we are. And we pray, God, that looking to Jesus as our example, trusting in Jesus as our Savior, knowing that His Spirit lives within us, give us the conviction that we can be content and we can live faithfully. I pray that that's who you would make us to be as a congregation. Not people who are discontent and think that we could be more faithful or more Christian even if just things would change in our lives. But rather, would you change us so that we would live our ordinary, unremarkable lives for your glory? And would you change us so that we know that that's all you're calling us to do right now. Make us content. Make us faithful. For Jesus' sake. Amen.